Morning. Okay, uh, we're in a new series, so we're going to still be in the book of Matthew, but in a new series. Um, I want to first talk about the elephant in the room. Yes, my face is jacked up. Um, I'm taking treatments right now for skin cancer, uh, but God's got it under control. We'll be fine in a few weeks. Um, but uh, this, I turned to Nate, you know, my right-hand man, right, for some, comp- some compassion. And he says, I don't worry about it. They'll just think you're going through puberty again. Yeah, mistake number one. Don't turn to Nate for sympathy. All right. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to continue in the book of Matthew. Uh, and Nate started this off for us last week. The name of this new series is called The Great Betrayal. And uh, this series is going to cover a lot of the events of the last days of Jesus. And as you can imagine, I mean, we're going to be covering some very, very important events uh, during this time frame. Uh, events that will actually form the very foundation of Christianity. Um, but to catch you up real quick, last, ne- last week Nate uh, discussed how Mary anointed Jesus' feet with a costly oil or perfume, right? And, and Judas didn't like it. Some of the disciples, and especially Judas, said, you know, hey, uh, that's a waste. They should uh, donate that to us, and we'll sell it and give it to the poor. Now, honestly, Judas could have cared less about the poor. He was not a bit worried about that. He wanted her to donate that so they could sell it, and he could steal it. Right, Because the whole reason he was there was just to pilfer and to steal uh, from Christ. So this week we're going we're gonna to discuss two major events in the last days of, of Jesus. And the first is the betrayal of Jesus, uh, and the second is the Last Supper. How many people know what the Last Supper is? Okay, good. It's, all, it's that painting like everybody has. All right, so um, uh, today's message is called Consumed. And the reason is, is when you see the characters, uh, the real-life characters that, that are in this Uh, this section of scripture, you see that it's pretty simple to find out what's in their hearts because what consumes somebody is generally what defines somebody. Whatever's consuming them, whatever they're giving everything they have to, generally that's going to define who they are, and we're going to see that in these characters today. So let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 14. It says, Then Judas, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, How much will you pay me? To betray Jesus to you. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Now that's going to be important. Uh, From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now everyone always asks me, why, what happened, why did Judas sell Jesus out? Why did that happen? And my simplest answer is, Judas never was a good man. Now some people think because he was following in the 12 that he was a good man at one time and then was corrupted. That's not the case. He was never a good man. He was selected to be there because God knew that he would never believe and that he would be the one most likely, or that would, betray Jesus. That's his whole purpose in being there. He was not a good man. Okay, now his surname, Iscariot, is likely from the Latin Sicarius, which means murderer. Yeah, I mean, what a rough name to have that carrying around with you, right? Judas Iscariot. But from the Latin, that's kind of a perversion of the Latin with the way they spelled it, but it was... Uh, it was Sicarius. It was murder. That's what it meant. Some actually believe that his family was uh, a radical bunch of Jewish revolutionists who were not afraid to kill people to get their cause through. They hated Rome. They were even called terrorists. Okay, this is the family that he was from. Now, maybe he thought that by following Jesus, he could make some money along the way, and that he, when Jesus, if Jesus, became the king he hoped he would be, He might give him a powerful position in that kingdom. So maybe his hunger for power is why he followed him. Or maybe he just wanted to steal from him. I mean, we don't really know. Either way, we know that he did give the Jewish priests the opportunity they've been waiting for. Right? They were looking for a way 
to get rid of Jesus. And here it's served to them on this silver platter. Right? And so it's obvious when you read about Jesus that he was consumed with greed. With greed and this hunger for power. That's what his whole life was about. And that's why he probably betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces or shekels of silver. I mean, just 30 pieces. Right? Because listen, 30 pieces aren't as much as you think. Okay, everybody thinks, wow, he got rich off that. He really didn't because 30 pieces uh, or shekels of silver was the price of a common slave. Right? If, well, listen to this. Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 32. It says, If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 what? Shekels. 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Right? Now, that was the price of a common slave. It's not like it was a great amount of money. So let's take a look at something here. We just last week heard that Mary took really, really valuable oil or perfume worth about one year's wages and used it to anoint Jesus. So when you look at their actions, the actions of both Mary and the actions of Judas, it kind of reveals what consumed their hearts at the time, doesn't it? It reveals it because Mary sacrificed something of great value to her, something of great value to her Personally and, and, and financially, this was of great, great value. A lot of people would save this for their dowry, right? This was a very expensive thing she sacrificed for Christ. And here Judas, on the other hand, sells Jesus out for the price of a common slave. He didn't even get a great deal of money to do it. He sells him out for the price of a common slave. So why? Why the 30 pieces of silver? See, in the Old Testament, God sent Zechariah to the Jews to start shepherding them, right? But in, in the fashion of the Jews, often through history, they rejected Zechariah and wanted to get him the heck out of there. So as he's leaving, he's saying, well, fine, I'll leave. But at least pay me my wages, and if not, that's fine too, whatever. Okay? So here's what they did. They decided for wages to give him 30 pieces of silver. And they knew then that that was the legal price of a common slave. They knew that. Right? So they gave Zechariah that amount because they wanted to insult him. They wanted him to leave thinking, we only value you like we value a common slave. You're of no value to us, just like a common slave. That was meant to insult Zechariah. When, uh, when Zechariah talked to God about it, God says, hey, listen, they don't have a problem with your value. They have a problem with mine if they rejected you. They are devaluing me, not you. So he made Zechariah essentially just give it away, give away that 30 pieces of silver. Now, knowing that, it's most... Probable, it's likely that the, that the Jewish priests offered that same amount for Jesus because they also wanted to insult him. They wanted to say, we don't think any more of Jesus than a common slave. We're not going to give you great amounts of money for someone we think is worthless, who's not what they claim to be. We'll give you the same amount we'd give for a common slave, and that's it. So this was most likely meant as an insult to Jesus. Judas didn't care, he just wanted money, right? But you know, it's funny... Nothing has really changed in that department since the days of Judah and Mary because, or Judas and Mary because our actions still reveal what consumes our hearts today. And if you pay attention, if you look at how someone invests three different things, you'll kind of usually find out what's, the, you know, what, what's consuming them, what's important to them, what their priorities are. And that's their time, their treasure, and their talent. All right, if you look at those three things, you can usually tell what's important to someone. And this always offends people, but it, it's true nonetheless, right? I mean, I have, I have literally talked to people who are furious because 
they think that churches shouldn't ask people to donate. That's, that's terrible. They shouldn't ask people to donate because everybody knows God just pays all the bills here, right? Just sends us a check every month, you know, says heaven in the return address part. Right? And they'll complain and complain about that and then come and brag me about spending $1,300 on a new gun. And I'm thinking to myself, why did you complain to me about not wanting to give and then tell me that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen this so many times. I've seen people upset that they have to pay the sound guy for a wedding at the church. The, sound, the church should do that for free. But we'll pay $2,000 for an open bar. You see what I'm saying? So you can, you can take just a few minutes and even look in your own life and look at your time, your treasure, and your talent, and you'll find out what consumes you, what's most important to you by looking at those three things. Okay, I could preach on that forever, but we're going to have to move on, all right? Matthew 26, starting in verse 17. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him the teacher says, my time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. Now, it was time to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. Now, when we read this section, we think of the Lord's Supper. We think of the Last Supper, right? We think of those two things, but it was, they were celebrating the festival of unleavened bread, right? That's what was going on. And he just says, here's what you do. Go into town, you'll see this guy, tell him it's time and prepare it there. So they did that and they prepared the meal just like he asked them to. But Jesus was consumed by love and you can, it's so evident by just every last thing he did, even something that's seemingly simple as, as celebrating a festival meal, it's his love is evident, right? Because he didn't see this as just a meal. He knew this was his last days. He knew that. He saw this as an opportunity for him to train these disciples to have a successful ministry after he'd gone. Because this was his last days. And he wanted them to succeed. He wanted them to continue to draw people into the kingdom. He wanted that, right? And he loved the disciples and he loved the ministry of grace so much that he wanted to make sure that it kept going and it kept going powerfully. So he was using this time to train them. That's what he's going to do. He's going to train them on how to be effective in ministry. He's going to tell him some very prolific things. And it just shows how he's consumed by love because he knows it's his last days. His crucifixion wasn't a surprise to him. He knew that was going to, that was going to happen. But in his last days, his focus is on making sure the ministry of grace continues and making sure his disciples are ready to face it. Making sure that the message of hope and salvation is still available to all men. Essentially, in his last days... He was only focused on saving the world, not himself. And I think that's so powerful. But the section we're going to read, I wanted to put a side note in here before we jump into this next section. Okay? The next few verses are usually what's used in a common communion service. And we have one coming up pretty soon, right? But I wanted to talk about something in that because I've had some issues come to me. All right, it's important to note there are no examples of a communion service in the Scripture. Everybody's looking at me like, what? Blasphemy. There really aren't. There are no examples of it in, in, in the Scripture. What we think of as the Lord's Supper or communion was actually one part of a huge celebration called the Passover. That's what was going on here. They were celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which was one of many celebrations of many events that would take place while celebrating the bigger event, the Passover. No one celebrated just one part of it. Nobody. 
They always celebrated the whole thing because it was that was how it was commanded to happen, right? So here's why they did that because the Passover as a whole was meant to commemorate when the children of Israel were were led out of Egypt or the Exodus out of Egypt when God brought them out of Egypt, and it was also commemorating when God spared their firstborn. And you guys all know this story. It was the tenth plague where God said the angel of death would kill every firstborn in every home except the homes of those who would sacrifice their best lamb and take its blood and, and smear it across the door, the door uh, or the head of the door. And it would be that when the angel of death would come through, every home that had the blood of the lamb on it would be passed by, would be saved. And those that didn't would not. You see the picture that was painting? They didn't get it yet, but that blood of the lamb, that sacrifice they put above their door that, that spared their firstborn was, a, was pointing to the sacrificial blood of Jesus that was about to come and save us. That's what that was pointing to. So that's what this whole celebration was about. Now the reason I wanted to make sure I talked about this is I've had people debate how many times you should have communion if you want to be an appropriate church. I've actually heard people judge other churches for not taking communion every week or how they take communion. Here's the deal. I have no problem with communion. I love it. I think it's a blessing. That's why we do it here, and we're about to do it in a few weeks, right? But the very, the very fact that Christians are willing to judge each other over something we're doing just as a commemoration to God that has no, you know, there's, there's no teaching on how to do it the way we do it in the scripture, to judge people like that takes away from the heart of what it's really about, remembering what Jesus has done for us. So it's kind of an unfair and unbiblical judgment. I'm just throwing that in there. It won't be on your bills next month. I just wanted to make sure you understood that. Okay, so let's move on. Matthew 26, starting in verse 20. It said, When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Okay. When Jesus made this statement, one thing popped into my mind, and maybe it's because I'm warped. Don't answer that. But there's two people in the room who had to feel really awkward. Because he's saying, one of you sold me out. One of you betrayed me. Now, what I was thinking is, the first person that probably everybody in that room thought about would have been Matthew. Did you ever think about that? Matthew was a tax collector. Levi, he was a tax collector. They ripped people off for a living. That's what they did, much like the IRS does today, right? Rip people off for a living. That's what they did. The Romans said, here, charge this much for tax. Anything you get over, that's yours. And they would charge huge amounts over what the tax actually was, and they would become rich off ripping off people, ripping people off their own brothers and sisters. So think about this. As soon as they said, Somebody betrayed here. They're probably all going, hmm, let me a stretch for you. What if they're Levi? You know what I mean? So he probably felt a little uncomfortable. And obviously, you know, I mean, the other person that's going to feel awkward is who? Judas, right? Because he knows it's him. Right? He's going to feel awkward. And I think the first thought that probably went through his mind is he's probably thinking, how does he even know about that? You know, he doesn't understand that he's God or, or care that he's all God and all man. He's probably thinking, how does he know that? Right? And, and think, of, think of the thoughts rushing through his mind at this moment. And to make matters worse, what happens next is kind of funny. Because you know how somebody will say something that makes you feel awkward and you're just hoping it moves on by? And someone just carries on the conversation and you forget it? That's probably what he's thinking. Oh, nobody answered. Let's move on. Right? Everybody deny it like good liars and let's just move on. 
But that's not what happens. What happens next makes it even more awkward. Look at this, Matthew 26, 22. Greatly distressed, each one asked, him, asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? <laughs> he replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, and the scriptures de- uh, as the scriptures declared a long time ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who betrayed him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Now, think about this. He says, one of you have betrayed me. And he's probably thinking, okay, please, let's let this go away. Nobody answer. He'll change the subject. And then each one of them, 11 men before him, says, Lord, was it me? <laughs> he's thinking, gosh, what a suck up. Why do you ask that question? Then the next person says, well, Lord, was it me? And on and on for 11 people asking that. Well, now he has no choice. What's he got to ask? Lord, was it me? You don't want to be the only one not asking if it was you. Because everybody would be going, why aren't you asking? You know what I mean? Talk about making it awkward. So last of all, he says, probably choking in his throat to say this. He says, Lord, was it me? Right? And, And Jesus responds with the Greek equivalent of, it is as you have said. Or... You have rightly spoken. Right, so he basically said, is it me, Lord? And he says, yeah, it's you. But you notice something? The disciples didn't pick up on that admission. It doesn't tell us anywhere they picked up on it. And I believe the reason is that was divine interference. God didn't want them to pick up on that. Because had they picked up on that, they would have tried to stop Judas from betraying it. Right? But that betrayal had to happen. It had to happen. I saw I was told one time of these two kids who went to see, you know, a passion play where they were going to, you know, they, you know, anybody ever been to the ones where they bring live animals in and everything? You know what I'm talking about? You haven't? You need to see one. They're pretty cool. But they're really lifelike, and they're a great production. And as they were taking Jesus, Jesus walks down the aisle, and he had the cross on his back in this play, and they saw Jesus. And one little boy stands up, and he says, don't kill Jesus. And the other one stands up and says, shut up and sit down. If he don't die, we're all in trouble. <laughs> Listen. And and he was right, because God didn't want anybody interfering. He took Judas into the 12 because he knew who and what he was, and he knew given the opportunity, he would betray Jesus. God knew he would never believe. He wasn't predestined to go to hell or anything. God just knew what consumed his heart and what would always consume his heart, right? So he didn't want them to know that, or they would have tried to stop him. So that's probably why they didn't hear that. But anybody ever wonder why they didn't say something after he admits that? Well, that's why. They would have tried to stop him, and it, that's something that couldn't allow to happen, right? Now, in the next section, this is some of the most beautiful imagery, I think, in Scripture. All right, I, I love this, and we're going to take our time with this. Okay, Matthew 26, 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is what? This is my body. Now, let me pause for a second. There are people who believe that when they were eating, it magically turned into real flesh. That is not true. It was figuratively speaking. You can't take every figurative speech in the scripture and try to make it literal. Or when Jesus said, I would take you under my wing, you would have to think he had wings. Right? It's not literal. He says, this is my body. Verse 27. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is what? This is my blood, which 
confirms the covenant between God and his people and is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. You know, a lot of, a lot of the you know, critics of Christ got a hold of this, and in the early church, they spread rumors that, that Christians were cannibals because they believed in eating flesh and drinking blood. That, this got around, and a lot of people were saying that. It just goes to show you how creative the devil is, right? But this is, when you think, when we go through this and see what this imagery really means, I think it's powerful. Because he starts off the last meal he's ever going to have with his disciples by breaking bread. And as he broke the bread, he made one of two amazing comparisons, because that's what these are. They're amazing comparisons. First he said, take this, and he was talking about the bread. Take this, the bread, and eat it. For it is my what? It is my body. Right? Now, to fully understand why he compared the bread to his body, you've got to go to John chapter 6. Let's look at this, John chapter 6. Starting in verse 30. It said, So they said to him, Now these were Jews that were at Capernaum. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Anybody remember what manna means? What is it? When the bread was falling out of the sky... They're going, what is, what is it? That's, that's where it got its name. There again, that's free. All right. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Okay, so what happened here were the, the Jews in Capernaum basically come up to him and said, do something cool so that we can believe in you. Show us something that only God could do. do you know, do some kind of trick. Do some kind of miracle. Give us something cool so that we can believe in you. Right? And then they said, because our fathers, they ate manna from heaven. They ate the bread from heaven. Right? Now, the Jewish people commonly attributed that miracle to Moses as well. Because it happened on Moses' watch. So they had lifted Moses up to being this almost godlike figure in their life. So they actually kind of gave Moses the credit for that because he was the one leading them. And so they thought he kind of provided them the bread. Right? But Jesus quickly says, Moses. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. That was my father, and I'm telling you that God is the one who will also give you the true bread from heaven. Right? And Jesus said the true bread from heaven. Unlike the manna, the manna, what would happen was God was providing them this bread from heaven. They were supposed to pick up what, just what they would eat every day, just enough to get them by every day. And when it came to a weekend, they would pick up double so they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. And so manna, that manna from heaven actually just gave them what they needed for that day. And that was it, right? But the, the bread that God had now sent from heaven was going to give them complete satisfaction, eternal life. They only have to consume it one time, right? And I think this is really powerful because he says, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Like that manna sustained you day by day. When you consume or believe in me as your Messiah, you'll never hunger again. 
You won't have to go out and gather and look for satisfaction. Satisfaction will be here in you because you believed in me. That's where it'll be. And I think that's so powerful. And this would have touched the Jews because, see, the Jews really hungered or greatly desired to have eternal life. And so much so that they were willing to keep an unkeepable, impossible law. I mean, if you ever get a chance to go back and read all the things in the law, you will run out of patience with it in about 15 minutes. No one other than Christ could keep the law. No one. But they wanted, they hungered so much for that that peace of knowing they had eternal life that they were willing to try every day. And every year, think about this, every year they would have to get the best of their flock and make the trip to Jerusalem and offer the best they had, but, you know, and give all their grain offerings, everything, so that the priests could get them forgiveness just temporarily. I mean, they didn't leave there going, well, I'm good. They left there going, well, I'm good till next time, Right? They knew that they would have to come back again and do the same thing all over again the next year. It never gave them complete forgiveness, just a temporary forgiveness that they'd have to earn again. But those who believe in Jesus have that hunger, that hunger for the satisfaction of knowing I am going to heaven. It's taken care of. It's paid in full. That hunger, he was saying, what you hunger for, I can satisfy because by believing in me, you'll have eternal forgiveness, right? And I know I'm not the only one that has felt that hunger. Do you remember that point in your life when you said, there has got to be more? Do you remember that? I mean, it's not that, you know, when I became a believer, all my problems went away. That's not what I'm saying. But I remember thinking, this can't be it. My life can't be a series of highs and lows. You know, enjoy the party, suffer all week till my next one. That can't be all there is to life. Go to work, make money, buy something, pay bills, have a party, go home. That can't be life. There's got to be more to it. I remember hungering to know that I was right with God. I knew there was a God, and I knew I needed to have a relationship with him, but I didn't really know how. And do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you, know, do you remember that time when God revealed to you, you need me? They lived with that and could never get satisfaction. That hunger could never be satisfied because they knew every time they did what the law commanded, it was only good for a year. It wasn't eternal. So this had to touch a spot in them when he said, I'll satisfy that hunger in you. It had to touch them, right? Now let's fast forward back to the Last Supper, back to the Festival of Unleavened Bread here when they're celebrating it. Matthew 26, 26. Let's read that again. As they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, eat it, for this is my body. Okay, the bread was meant to commemorate the fact that he was going to sacrifice his body to give them eternal life. That's why the bread represented the body. He was the bread from heaven. Remember the bread from heaven that they had in the wilderness? Only satisfied for a day. The true bread, he said, brought eternal life. I am that bread. Now he's saying, take of this bread and eat it or consume it. Because he wanted, and he's always wanted, to be right here, inside of all of us. He's saying, consume this. This is my body. This represents what I'm about to do. Give this body for you to have eternal life. Right? And then, He kind of expounds on that in the next few verses and actually shows how perfectly his death paid that debt. Matthew 26, starting in verse 27. 
said when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Right? Verse 28, for this is my blood. Right? My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? For forgiveness of sins. Right? Now, why did he do that? He already said he was given his body. He already said, I'm, I'm sacrificing my body. You'd think that would imply the blood's going with it, right? Why did he take time to specifically point out blood? And let me explain that, right? The Jews knew that God said forgiveness came through the shedding of blood. Anybody ever wonder why? You ever read the Old Testament and look around and think, man, this is a bloodbath. I mean, they are slaughtering and, and sacrificing stuff all over the place. It was like going into a butcher's store, you know, blood flying everywhere. Why? Why was it like that? And the ample, the, the ample, the ample, which is a new word I created, the answer is really simple because blood represents life. Okay, blood represents life. It is the life-giving force in all of us. See, you can live without water for, I don't know how long, some people say, you know, a long, long time, like what, three or four days, something like that? Three days? I have a medical person saying three days, okay. What if you have Werner's? Does that extend your life? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you can live without water for three days. You can live without food. I believe some IRA people who were on a hunger strike one time made it 42 days. Yeah, nothing means that much to me. I'm just going to say it out loud. But anyway, you can make it a long time without food. But if they drain all the bloody, uh, blood out of your body, how many days do you think you're going to last? You're dead. You cannot live without blood. It is the life-giving force in every person that's alive. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is what? In the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it, is, for it is the blood by reason of what? The life that makes atonement. It's because blood represents life. It is the life-giving force. Right now, sin represents death. If you look at Romans 6.23, just the first part, A, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Blood represents life. Right? Sin represents death okay so they did this to symbolize the life-giving force of this perfect sacrifice the best they had would cover the death-bringing force of sin that was the whole purpose and it was designed to point to something better and something bigger it was never meant to be the final solution it was always supposed to point to something bigger and better because the problem was yes they were applying the best they had that blood to cover their sin but here was the problem with all the animal sacrifices, no matter how good, no matter how perfect that animal, it w could never be eternal. And that blood could never bring eternal redemption because the animal they got it from was not eternal. It would die sooner or later, right? So it wasn't eternal blood. It couldn't bring eternal redemption. So to have eternal life, here's the kind of blood they needed. They needed eternal blood. And the only way that blood could ever be eternal is if, God became flesh. Because then the eternality of God would be in the body of man and the blood that flowed through those veins would be eternal blood. And that happened with who? And say, so if you guys get that question wrong, we're shutting it down right now. Right? Jesus was all God and all man, therefore bringing eternity into the body of one man, making him the perfect and only eternal sacrifice. So when Jesus was saying the wine represented the blood, he's saying, take this wine to remember that I'm the only one 
that can be offered as a sacrifice whose blood can cover your sin forever. I'm the only one. My blood is the only blood that can be shed that will guarantee your eternal life. And I'm about to do that. And those who believe will have that eternal blood applied to their doorpost, if you will, applied to their lives. And they will have eternal life because I am the perfect Lamb of God that brings eternal life. That's what that represented. Basically, he was telling them, listen, I want you to be able to understand this because when I'm gone, you've got to be able to explain this to people. You've got to be able to make it make sense. Now you know how to explain it to the Jews in a way that makes sense, that makes the law make sense to them. Now you know how to explain that. Now you know how to explain it to those Gentiles that come to you and want to know if there's a way for them to have eternal life. What I'm about to do will pay the sin debt of the world in full. Remember it because all religion is worthless if the message of faith in Christ is not a part of it. All of it's worthless. So he knew they would go on about their way. He didn't want them to go on about their way and just be religious churchy people. He wanted them to go about their way with a powerful message of eternal redemption. That's what this was for. That's what this was for. All right, now, I think this is really powerful because it should give us a better idea of what we're celebrating when we celebrate communion, when we have a communion service. When we choose to do that, we are trying to remember this very event, what happened right here. We're trying to remember that, right? And when we consume that bread, when we drink from the cup, we're supposed to remember that Jesus did what only he could do gave his body and blood for us to have eternal life. Not because we deserved it, but because he wanted us to have it. Because he loves us so much that he offers us what we don't deserve, which is called grace. He given a, gave us something we do not deserve. And I'll be honest, church, I, <laughs> I feel like Christianity is walking farther away from this message and worried more about getting closer to a popular message that people will adhere to. Don't you? We're becoming moderates, if you will. We're walking the middle too much. Right? We should love people. We shouldn't judge people. But the crux of Christianity is Jesus came, died, and rose again so that whoever believed in him could have eternal life. And if you do not believe in him, you will not have it. We need to quit dressing it up, and we need to remind everyone, not just at communion time, but at every time, that we are here because God sent his only son to die on your behalf. That's why we're here. And if you're going to heaven, it's not because you're good. It's not because you're righteous. So sorry, all you self-righteous people who love to judge everybody. You deserve hell. Just going to let you know. The Pope deserves hell. Billy Graham deserves hell. I deserve hell. Every preacher, I don't care how big or how small, notice I put myself with the small in there, right? No matter what religion, no matter what denomination, right, all of us deserve hell. The only reason we have eternal life is because Jesus was willing to give his body and his blood to be the perfect sacrifice to guarantee us eternal life. In effect, at the end of this meal, Jesus was saying, everything you're celebrating See, they celebrated the Passover looking forward to a coming Messiah. He's saying, everything you're celebrating is here, right here. No need to sacrifice anymore. No need to go to a priest anymore. Because after I give my body and I give my blood, you will have direct access to the throne through me. 
I'm the only priest you'll have to worry about. Right? And I love how he closed this. Right? Because he closed this by saying something really cool. Let's look at this. Matthew 26, 29 through 30. He says, Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. At the end of a Passover celebration, they would usually sing one very important lyric or say something out loud with each other. Anybody remember what that was? Next year in Jerusalem. And what it meant was they were all hoping to have the Jerusalem that was promised to them in the kingdom next year. And their prayer was that next year they could all be together in that kingdom celebrating with their Messiah. That was their hope. Next year in Jerusalem, basically saying maybe next year it's all going to happen like God said and we're all going to enjoy it. That's what they would say at the end of every Passover and still do. Right? And this was Jesus' way of saying, listen, I won't, I won't do this again with you until we do it in the kingdom together. He was basically saying the same thing. What everybody said next year in the kingdom, he's saying, we're going to do this again. But when we do it that time, I won't be hiding from anybody. Nobody will be able to take my life. No one will question who I am or what I've done because I will be known as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and it will be my kingdom and my table we sit at and you will recognize me for who I am and so will the rest of the world. I won't do this again until that time, until that happens, which is going to happen after the millennial kingdom. This is at the second coming of Christ. I think that is so powerful, so powerful, or after the second coming, actually. I think that's so powerful because this is his way of putting to ease all the religion, right? Because they were probably ready to say at the end of when it finally ended, what do you think they wanted to say next year in Jerusalem? So he, he wanted to let them know what you wish for when you sing that is happening. It's happening. It's being fulfilled in me. And that was to encourage them because when he was gone, they would need it. And their courage would come from what happened at this last meal. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you, Wood, to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Nothing with pressure. We don't ask people to come down front. None of that. We just believe the Word of God's powerful, and I believe that when it's taught, it touches people. I remember the day that I was sitting in a service, and the Word touched me. I don't even remember what he was preaching on. And it touched me. And I, had to, I felt like, I don't know what to do now. And he said, anybody here who would like me to pray for them, just raise your hand. And before I thought, my hand was in the air because I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on, but I need help here. The next day, I was at that same church. And they sang a song about the three Hebrew children in the fire. And I started crying. And I had no idea what that song was about. Because the Word of God has a way of touching us where we are. If you're not sure where you stand and you'd like me to pray for you, I'm not going to point you out or email you, chase you down after church. I just want to pray for you. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people, and I'm, I'm going to pray for you. Those of you listening and watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But this whole lesson today should remind us of one thing. We never had to be good enough. We never had to deserve it. Jesus came because we couldn't, and he completed it because he loves us. So if you want it, you can have it. Now, those of us who believed, I always pray for us also because I think we've strayed from this message. This is what we do and why we're here. 
Think of these words. Let it reassure you and use it to reassure others and draw others to him. That's what we need to be doing. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I love you, Lord. I thank you for how much you love me. I thank you for how much you love each and every person on this earth. We know, God, that it takes an amazing kind of love to overlook how sinful we are and to love us despite us, but your love is so perfect, it does that. I'm thankful that you offered us eternal life, not because we deserved it, but because you desire for us to have it. So if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that they lay all the things down that hinder them and just trust that what your son did was enough and your word promises that if they do that, they'll have eternal life. If they make that decision, I pray they reach out to us or reach out to a good Christian friend or organization to help them with their new faith. And God, for those of us who already know you, no matter what we're doing, whether it be in the church or in personal ministry, I pray, God, it's always based on the fact that your son gave us life, that we could have eternal life free of charge. Let us drop all the religion and all the tradition and focus on the fact that anyone that believes this message can have that blood applied to their life. Let that be a priority in our lives. Let your love and your redemption consume us so that we can share it with others. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to go with us as we leave here. Keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.